0: Alone by Edgar Allan Poe From childhood's hour I have not been, As others were I have not seen, As others saw I could not bring My passions from a common spring. From the same source I have not taken, My sorrow I could not awaken, My heart to joy at the same tone, And all I loved I loved alone. Then in my childhood in the dawn Of a most stormy life was drawn, from every depth of good and ill, the mystery which binds me still, from the torrent or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn tint of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud that took the form when the rest of heaven was blue of a demon in my view. Hey everybody, CJ here, welcome to episode 123 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and a happy Halloween to you and yours. And if you're listening to this at a totally different time of year because of the time shift nature of podcasting, well I hope you have a nice little Halloween feeling in your heart, even if it's the middle of summer or the dead of winter, and I hope that the next Halloween you have is excellent. Halloween has long been one of my favorite holidays, and I have to say I'm intensely jealous of those of you who live in places that has a real autumn. I only lived for two years in a place that had a real autumn in my entire life, and I absolutely loved it. The feel of the air, the smell of things, the colors of the changing leaves, all that. I miss it dearly, but I still love Halloween. And that's why I decided to do something a little bit different that I've not done before and do a Halloween special in which I would share with you some of my favorite scary poems and stories from a long time ago. And these are stories and poems that are old enough that they're now in the public domain. So, you know, even though I don't think that intellectual property is a valid form of property, etc., etc., I also am pragmatic enough to realize that it is still, as of now, an enforced thing. So I dug up some of my favorite stories and poems that are old enough that they are in the public domain, and there's no problem with that. Also just want to let you know that shortly after I release this episode, I'll also be putting out in Patreon a bonus episode for the Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast, where I'm going to be sharing even more spooky, scary poems and stories. So if you're a Patreon supporter of the show, look for that to be coming out pretty soon after this episode airs, and then also if you are not a Patreon supporter, perhaps you'll consider doing so. Okay, on with the show. Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street at Salem Village, but put his head back after crossing the threshold to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife, and Faith, as the young wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street, letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap while she called to Goodman Brown. "'Dearest heart,' whispered she, Softly and rather sadly, when her lips were close to his ear. Prithee, put off your journey until sunrise, and sleep in your own bed to-night. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she's afeard of herself sometimes. Pray tarry with me this night, dear husband, of all nights in the year. My love and my faith, replied young Goodman Brown. Of all nights in the year, this one night must I tarry away from thee. My journey, as thou callest it, forth and back again must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet pretty wife, dost thou doubt me already, and we but three months married? Then God bless you, said Faith, with the pink ribbons, and may you find all well when you come back. Amen, cried Goodman Brown, say thy prayers, dear Faith, and go to bed at dusk, and no harm will come to thee. So they parted, and the young man pursued his way until, being about to turn the corner by the meeting-house, he looked back and saw the head of Faith, still peeping after him with a melancholy air in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, thought he, for his heart smote him. What a wretch am I to leave her on such an errand! She talks of dreams, too, Methought as she spoke there was trouble in her face, as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done tonight. But no, no. "'T'would kill her to think it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future, Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose." He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through, and closed immediately behind. It was all as lonely as could be. There is this peculiarity in such solitude, that the traveller knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick boughs overhead, so that with lonely footsteps he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude." There may be a devilish Indian behind every tree, said Goodman Brown to himself. And he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, What if the devil himself should be at my very elbow? His head being turned back, he passed a crook of the road, and looking forward again beheld the figure of a man, in grave and decent attire, seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose at Goodman Brown's approach and walked onward side by side with him. You are late, Goodman Brown, said he. The clock of the Old South was striking as I came through Boston, and that is full fifteen minutes agone. "'Faith kept me back a while,' replied the young man, with a tremor in his voice, caused by the sudden appearance of his companion, though not wholly unexpected. It was now deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it where these two were journeying.' As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveler was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown, and bearing a considerable resemblance to him, though perhaps more in expression than features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son, and yet, though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world, and who would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner table, or in King William's court, were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake, so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself, like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. "'Come, Goodman Brown,' cried his fellow traveller. "'This is a dull pace for the beginning of a journey. "'Take my staff, if you are so soon weary.' "'Friend,' said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop, "'having kept covenant by meeting thee here, "'it is my purpose now to return whence I came. "'I have scruples touching the matter thou wast of.' "'Sayest thou so?' replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. "'Let us walk on, nevertheless,' reasoning as we go. And if I convince thee not, thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way in the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the goodman, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs. And shall I be the first of the name of Brown that ever took this path and kept... Such company thou wouldst say, observed the elder person, interpreting his pause. Well said, Goodman Brown. I have been as well acquainted with your family as with ever a one among the Puritans, and that's no trifle to say. I helped your grandfather, the constable, when he lashed the Quaker woman so smartly through the streets of Salem. And it was I that brought your father a pitch-pine knot kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. They were my good friends, both, and many a pleasant walk have we had along this path, and returned merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you for their sake. "'If it be as thou sayest,' replied Goodman Brown, "'I marvel they never spoke of these matters. Or, verily, I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England.' We are a people of prayer, and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. Wickedness or not, said the traveler with the twisted staff, I have a very general acquaintance here in New England. The deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. The selectmen of diverse towns make me their chairman, and a majority of the great and general court are firm supporters of my interest. The governor and I, too, but these are state secrets. Can this be so? cried Goodman Brown with a stare of amazement at his undisturbed companion. Howbeit I have nothing to do with the Governing Council. They have their own ways, and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, how should I meet the eye of that good old man, our minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble both Sabbath day and lecture day. Thus far the elder traveller had listened with due gravity, but now burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. "'Ha, ha, ha!' shouted he again and again, then composing himself. "'Well, go on, Goodman Brown, go on, but prithee, don't kill me with laughing.' "'Well, then, to end the matter at once,' said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled. "'There is my wife Faith.' it would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own. Nay, if that be the case, answered the other, in go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not for twenty old women like the one hobbling before us that faith should come to any harm. As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure on the path in whom Goodman Brown recognized a very pious and exemplary dame who had taught him his catechism in youth and was still his moral and spiritual adviser, jointly with the minister and deacon Gookin. "'A marvel, truly, that goody Cloyce should be so far in the wilderness at nightfall,' said he. "'But with your leave, friend, I shall take a cut through the woods until we have left this Christian woman behind. Being a stranger to you, she might ask whom I was consorting with and whither I was going.' "'Be it so,' said his fellow-traveller, "'betake you to the woods, and let me keep the path.' Accordingly, the young man turned aside, but took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way, with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer doubtless, as she went. The traveller put forth his staff and touched her withered neck with what seemed the serpent's tail— The devil! screamed the pious old lady. Then Goody Cloyce knows her old friend, observed the traveler, confronting her and leaning on his writhing stick. Ah, forsooth, and it is your worship indeed, cried the old dame. Yea, truly it is, and in the very image of my old gossip, Goodman Brown, the grandfather of the silly fellow that now is. But would your worship believe it? My broomstick hath strangely disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by that unhanged witch, Goody Cory, and that, too, when I was all anointed with the juice of smolich and sinkfoil and wolfsbane. Mingled with fine wheat and the fat of a newborn babe, said the shape of old Goodman Brown. Ah, your worship knows the recipe, cried the old lady, cackling aloud. So, as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, I made up my mind to foot it, for they tell me there is a nice young man to be taken into communion to-night, but now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling.' "'That can hardly be,' answered her friend. "'I may not spare you my arm, goody Cloys, but here is my staff, if you will.' So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where, perhaps, it assumed life being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to the egyptian magi of this fact however goodman brown could not take cognizance he had cast up his eyes in astonishment and looking down again beheld neither goody Clois nor the serpentine staff but his fellow traveler alone who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened that old woman taught me my catechism said the young man and there was a world of meaning in this simple comment They continued to walk onward while the elder traveler exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path, discoursing so aptly that his arguments seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to serve for a walking stick, and began to strip it of the twigs and little boughs, which were wet with evening dew." The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered and dried up as with a weak sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded at a good free pace, until suddenly, in a gloomy hollow of the road, Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree and refused to go any further. Friend, said he stubbornly, my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand. What if a wretched old woman do choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is that any reason why I should quit my dear faith and go after her? You will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance composedly. Sit here and rest yourself a while. And when you feel like moving again, here is my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly, and thinking with how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk, nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin. And what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but so purely and sweetly now in the arms of faith— Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tramp of horses along the road and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest, conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof tramps and the voices of the riders, two grave old voices, conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road, within a few yards of the young man's hiding place. But, owing doubtless to the depth of the gloom at that particular spot, neither the travelers nor their steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small boughs by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted, even for a moment, the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky athwart which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as he durst without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, that he recognized the voices of the minister and deacon Gookin jogging along quietly, as they were wont to do when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council, while yet within hearing one of the riders stopped to pluck a switch. "'Of the two, reverend sir,' said the voice like the deacons, "'I had rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting.' They tell me that some of our community are to be here from Falmouth and beyond, and others from Connecticut and Rhode Island, besides several of the Indian powwows, who, after their fashion, know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken into communion. "'Mighty well, Deacon Gookin,' replied the solemn old tones of the minister. "'Spur up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground.' The hoofs clattered again, and the voices, talking so strangely in the empty air, passed on through the forest, where no church had ever been gathered or solitary Christian prayed. Whither, then, could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink down on the ground, faint and overburdened with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up to the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him. Yet there was the blue arch, and the stars brightening in it. "'With heaven above and faith below, I will yet stand firm against the devil,' cried Goodman Brown. While he still gazed upward into the deep arch of the firmament and had lifted his hands to pray, a cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the brightening stars.' The blue sky was still visible, except directly overhead, where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if, from the depths of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accents of townspeople of his own, men and women, both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table, and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest, whispering without a wind. Then came a stronger swell of those familiar tones, heard daily in the sunshine at Salem Village, but never until now from a cloud of night. There was one voice of a young woman, uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow and entreating for some favor which perhaps it would grieve her to obtain— and all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. "'Faith!' shouted Goodman Brown, in a voice of agony and desperation. And the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, "'Faith! Faith!' as if bewildered wretches were seeking her all through the wilderness. The cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night, when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response." There was a scream, drowned immediately in a loud murmur of voices, fading into far-off laughter as the dark cloud swept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down, through the air, and caught on the branch of a tree. The young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. "'My faith is gone!' cried he, after one stupefied moment." there is no good on earth, and sin is but a name. Come, devil, for to thee is this world given. And maddened with despair, so that he laughed loud and long, did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again, at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path, rather than to walk or run. The road grew wilder and drearier, and more faintly traced, and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness, still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal men to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of the trees, the howling of wild beasts, and the yell of Indians, while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell, and sometimes gave a broad roar around the traveller, as if all nature were laughing him to scorn." but he was himself the chief horror at the scene, and shrank not from its other horrors. Ha, 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 roared Goodman Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us hear which will laugh loudest. Think not to frighten me with your deviltry. Come, witch, come, wizard, come, Indian powwow, come, devil himself, and here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fears you. In truth— All through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew, among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of horrid blasphemy, and now shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest, laughing like demons around him. The fiend in his own shape is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of man. Thus sped the demoniac, on his course until, quivering among the trees, he saw a red light before him, as when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire and throw up their lurid blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward and heard the swell of what seemed a hymn rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. He knew the tune. It was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting-house. The verse died, heavily away, and was lengthened by a chorus, not of human voices, but of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, and his cry was lost to his own ear by its unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence, he stole forward until the light glared full upon his eyes— At one extremity of an open space, hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest, arose a rock bearing some rude, natural resemblance either to an altar or a pulpit, and surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame their stems untouched, like candles at an evening meeting. The mass of foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night and fitfully illuminating the whole field each pendant-twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red light rose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. A grave and dark-clad company, quoth Goodman Brown. In truth, they were such— Among them, quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others which, Sabbath after Sabbath, looked devoutly heavenward and benignantly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land. Some affirm that the lady of the governor was there. At least there were high dames well known to her, and wives of honored husbands and widows, a great multitude and ancient maidens, all of excellent repute, and fair young girls who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleams of light flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized a score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their especial sanctity." good old Deacon Gookin had arrived and waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his revered pastor. But irreverently consorting with these grave, reputable, and pious people, these elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives and women of spotted fame, wretches, given over to all mean and filthy vice, and suspected even of horrid crimes." it was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked, nor were the sinners abashed by the saints. Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests or powwows, who had often scared their native forest with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where is faith, thought Goodman Brown, and as hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose, a slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin, and darkly hinted at far more. Unfathomable to mere mortals is the lore of fiends. Verse after verse was sung, and still the chorus of the desert swelled between like the deepest tone of a mighty organ. And with the final peal of that dreadful anthem, there came a sound as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling beast, and every other voice of the unconcerted wilderness were mingling and according with the voice of a guilty man in homage to the Prince of All. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame. and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly." At the same moment the fire on the rock shot redly forth, and formed a glowing arch above its base, where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude, both in garb and manner, to some grave divine of the New England churches. "'Bring forth the converts!' cried a voice that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word... Goodman Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation, with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood by the sympathy of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well-nigh sworn that the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke of wreath, while a woman with dim features of despair threw out her hand to warn him back. Was it his mother?' But he had no power to retreat one step, nor to resist, even in thought, when the minister and good old Deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female, led between Goody Clois, that pious teacher of the catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes beneath the canopy of fire." welcome my children said the dark figure to the communion of your race ye have found thus young your nature and your destiny my children look behind you they turned and flashing forth as it were in a sheet of flame the fiend worshippers were seen the smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage there resumed the sable form are all whom ye have reverenced from youth you deemed them holier than yourselves and shrank from your own sin, contrasting it with their lives of righteousness and prayerful aspirations heavenward. Yet here are they all in my worshiping assembly. This night it shall be granted you to know their secret deeds. How hoary-bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households. How many a woman, eager for widow's weeds has given her husband a drink at bedtime and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom. How beardless youths have made haste to inherit their father's wealth, and how fair damsels, blush not sweet ones, have dug little graves in the garden and bidden me, the sole guest, to an infant's funeral. By the sympathy of your human hearts for sin ye shall scent out all the places, whether in church, bedchamber, street, field, or forest, where crime has been committed, and shall exalt to behold the whole earth one stain of guilt, one mighty blood spot. Far more than this, it shall be yours to penetrate in every bosom the deep mystery of sin, the fountain of all wicked arts." and which inexhaustibly supplies more evil impulses than human power, than my power at its utmost can make manifest in deeds. And now, my children, look upon each other. They did so, and by the blaze of the hell-kindled torches, the wretched man beheld his faith, and the wife her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. Lo, there you stand, my children, said the figure, in a deep and solemn tone almost sad with its despairing awfulness, as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. Depending upon one another's hearts, ye had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. Now are ye undeceived. Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race." "'Welcome,' repeated the fiend-worshippers, in one cry of despair and triumph. And there they stood, the only pair, as it seemed, who were yet hesitating on the verge of wickedness in this dark world. A basin was hollowed, naturally, in the rock. Did it contain water, reddened by the lurid light, or was it blood, or perchance a liquid flame?' Herein did the shape of evil dip his hand and prepare to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads, that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife and faith at him. What polluted wretches would the next glance show them to each other, shuddering alike at what they disclosed and what they saw? Faith, faith, cried the husband, look up to heaven and resist the wicked one. Whether faith obeyed he knew not, hardly had he spoken, when he found himself amid calm night and solitude, listening to a roar of the wind, which died heavily away through the forest. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp, while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coldest dew. The next morning, Young Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon, and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was at domestic worship, and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. What god doth the wizard pray to? quoth Goodman Brown. Goody Cloyce, that excellent old Christian, stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning's milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child, as from the grasp of the fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting-house, he spied the head of faith, with the pink ribbons gazing anxiously forth and bursting into such joy at sight of him that she skipped along the street and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly and sadly into her face and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch-meeting? Be it so if you will, but alas, it was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown. A stern, A sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man, did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation was singing a holy psalm, he could not listen, because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence, and with his hand on the open Bible of the sacred truths of our religion, and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths, and of future bliss or misery unutterable. Then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading, lest the roof should thunder down upon the gray blasphemer and his hearers. Often, waking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and at morning or eventide, when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself, and gazed sternly at his wife, and turned away. And when he had lived long, and was borne to his grave, a hoary corpse, followed by faith, an aged woman, and children and grandchildren, a goodly procession, besides neighbors not a few, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone. For his dying hour was gloom. The Festival, by H.P. Lovecraft. At the top of the story, before the story itself starts, there's a quotation in Latin that I won't even try to pronounce, but luckily it has a... it has an English translation, so I can read that to you. Devils so work that things which are not appear to men as if they were real. Lactantius. I was far from home, and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight, I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I push on through the shallow, new-fallen snow along the road that soared lonely up to where Aldebaran twinkled among the trees.' on toward the very ancient town I had never seen but often dreamed of. It was the Yuletide that men call Christmas, though they know in their hearts it is older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. It was Yuletide, and I had come at last to the ancient sea-town where my people had dwelt and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden, where also they had commanded their sons to keep festival once every century, that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Mine were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled three hundred years before. And they were strange, because they had come as dark, furtive folk from opiate southern gardens of orchids, and spoken another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. And now they were scattered and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. I was the only one who came back that night to the old fishing town as legend bade, for only the poor and the lonely remember. Then beyond the hill's crest I saw Kingsport, outspread frostily in the gloaming. Snowy Kingsport with its ancient veins and steeples, ridge poles and chimney pots, wharves and small bridges, willow trees and graveyards. Endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets and dizzy church-crowned central peak that time durst not touch. Ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels like a child's disordered blocks. Antiquity hovering on gray wings over winter-whitened gables and gambrel roofs. Fanlights and small pane windows, one by one gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars. And against the rotting wharves, the sea pounded, the secretive, immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time. Beside the road at its crest, a still higher summit rose, bleak and windswept. I saw that it was a burying ground where black gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like the decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse. The printless road was very lonely, and sometimes I thought I heard a distant, horrible creaking as of a gibbet in the wind. They had hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692, but I did not know just where. As the road wound down the seaward slope, I listened for the merry sounds of a village at evening, but did not hear them. Then I thought of the season, and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs, strange to me, and full of silent hearthside prayer. So after that, I did not listen for merriment or look for wayfarers, kept on down past the hushed, lighted farmhouses, and shadowy stone walls to where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the salt breeze, and the grotesque knockers of pillared doorways glistened along deserted unpaved lanes in the light of little curtained windows. I had seen maps of the town and knew where to find the home of my people. It was told that I should be known and welcomed, for village legend lives long so I hastened through Back street to Circle Court, and across the fresh snow on the one full flagstone pavement in the town, to where Green Lane heads off behind the market house. The old map still held good, and I had no trouble, though at Arkham they must have lied when they said the trolleys ran to this place, since I saw not a wire overhead. Snow would have hid the rails in any case." I was glad I had chosen to walk, for the white village seemed very beautiful from the hill, and now I was eager to knock at the door of my people, the seventh house on the left in Green Lane, with an ancient peaked roof and jutting second story, all built before 1650. There were lights inside the house as when I came upon it, and I saw from the diamond window panes that it must have been kept very close to its antique state. The upper part overhung the narrow grass-grown street and nearly met the overhanging part of the house opposite, so that I was almost in a tunnel, with the low stone doorstep wholly free from snow. There was no sidewalk, but many houses had high doors reached by double flights of steps with iron railings. It was an odd scene, and because I was strange to New England, I had never known its like before though it pleased me I would have relished it better if there had been footprints in the snow and people in the streets, and a few windows without drawn curtains. When I sounded the archaic iron knocker I was half afraid. Some fear had been gathering in me, perhaps because of the strangeness of my heritage, and the bleakness of the evening, and the queerness of the silence in that aged town of curious customs." and when my knock was answered I was fully afraid, because I had not heard any footsteps before the door creaked open. But I was not afraid long, for the gowned, slippered old man in the doorway had a bland face that reassured me, and though he made signs that he was dumb, he wrote a quaint and ancient welcome with the stylus and wax tablet he carried. He beckoned me into a low, candlelit room with massive, exposed rafters and dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the seventeenth century. The past was vivid there, for not an attribute was missing. There was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back toward me, silently spinning despite the festive season. An indefinite dampness seemed upon the place, and I marveled that no fire should be blazing. The high-backed settle faced the row of curtain windows at the left and seemed to be occupied, though I was not sure. I did not like everything about what I saw, and felt again the fear I had had. This fear grew stronger from what had before lessened it, for the more I looked at the old man's bland face, the more its very blandness terrified me. The eyes never moved, and the skin was too much like wax. Finally, I was sure it was not a face at all, but a fiendishly cunning mask.' but the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote genially on the tablet and told me I must wait a while before I could be led to the place of the festival. Pointing to a chair, table, and pile of books, the old man now left the room, and when I sat down to read, I saw that the books were hoary and moldy, and that they included old Morister's wild marvels of science, the terrible sadichismus triumphitus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681— the shocking De Mono of Remigius, printed in 1595 at Lyons, and worst of all, the unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul El Hazrat in Olaus Wormius's forbidden Latin translation. A book which I had never seen, but of which I had heard monstrous things whispered. No one spoke to me, but I could hear the creaking of signs in the wind outside and the whir of the wheel as the bonneted old woman continued her silent spinning, spinning. I thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting, but because an old tradition of my father's had summoned me to strange feastings, I resolved to expect queer things." So I tried to read, and soon became tremblingly absorbed by something I found in that accursed Necronomicon, a thought and a legend too hideous for sanity or consciousness, but I disliked it when I fancied I heard the closing of one of the windows that the settle faced, as if it had been stealthily opened. It had seemed to follow a whirring that was not of the old woman's spinning wheel, This was not much, though, for the old woman was spinning very hard, and the aged clock had been striking. After that I lost the feeling that there were persons on the settle, and was reading intently and shudderingly when the old man came back, booted and dressed in a loose antique costume, and sat down on that very bench, so that I could not see him. It was certainly nervous waiting, and the blasphemous book in my hands made it doubly so. When eleven struck, however, the old man stood up, glided to a massive carved chest in a corner, and got two hooded cloaks, one of which he donned, and the other of which he draped round the old woman, who had ceased her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping, and the old man, after picking up the very book I had been reading, beckoning me as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask." We went out into the moonless and tortuous network of that incredibly ancient town, went out as the lights and the curtained windows disappeared one by one, and the dog-star leered at the throng of cowled, cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up this street and that, past the creaking signs and antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and diamond-pane windows— threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanthorns made eldritch-drunken constellations. Amid these hushed throngs, I followed my voiceless guides, jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft, and pressed by chests and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy, But seeing never a face and hearing never a word, up, 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 the eerie column slithered, and I saw that all the travelers were converging as they flowed near a sort of focus of crazy alleys at the top of a high hill in the center of town where perched a great white church. I had seen it from the road's crest when I looked at Kingsport in the New Dusk, and it made me shiver because Aldebaran had seemed to balance itself a moment on the ghostly spire. There was an open space around the church, partly a churchyard with spectral shafts, and partly a half-paved square swept nearly bare of snow by the wind and lined with unwholesomely archaic houses having peaked roofs and overhanging gables. Death fires danced over the tombs, revealing gruesome vistas, though queerly failing to cast any shadows. Past the churchyard, there were no houses. I could see over the hill's summit and watch the glimmer of stars on the harbor, though the town was invisible in the dark. Only once in a while a lantern bobbed horribly through the serpentine alleys, on its way to overtake the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into the church. I waited till the crowd had oozed into the black doorway until all the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at my sleeve, but I was determined to be the last. Crossing the threshold into the swarming temple of unknown darkness, I turned once to look at the outside world as the churchyard phosphorescence cast a sickly glow on the hilltop pavement. And as I did so, I shuddered. For though the wind had not left much snow, a few patches did remain on the path near the door, and in that fleeting backward look it seemed to my troubled eyes that they bore no mark of passing feet, not even mine. The church was scarce lighted by all the lanterns that had entered it, for most of the throng had already vanished. They had streamed up the aisle between the high pews to the trap-door of the vaults which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit and were now squirming noiselessly in. I followed dumbly down the foot-worn steps and into the dark, suffocating crypt. The tale of that sinuous line of night-martyrs seemed very horrible, and as I saw them wriggling into a venerable tomb, they seemed more horrible still. Then I noticed that the tomb's floor had an aperture down which the throng was sliding, and in a moment we were all descending an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone, a narrow spiral staircase, damp and peculiarly odorous, that wound endlessly down into the bowels of the hill past monotonous walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar. It was a silent, shocking descent, and I observed after a horrible interval that the walls and steps were changing in nature, as if chiseled out of the solid rock. What mainly troubled me was that the myriad footfalls made no sound and set up no echoes. After more eons of descent, I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to this shaft of nighted misery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odor of decay grew quite unbearable. I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterraneous evil. Then I saw the lurid shimmering of pale light, and heard the insidious lapping of sunless waters. Again I shivered, for i did not like the things that the night had brought and wished bitterly that no forefather had summoned me to this primal rite as the steps and the passage grew broader i heard another sound the thin whining mockery of a feeble flute and suddenly there spread out before me the boundless vista of an inner world a vast fungus shore litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame and washed by a wide, oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. Fainting and gasping, I looked at that unhallowed Erebus of Titan toadstools, leprous fire, and slimy water, and saw the cloaked throngs forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar. It was the Yule Rite, older than man and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, light and music, and in the Stygian grotto I saw them do the rite and adore the sick pillar of flame and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the viscous vegetation which glittered green in the chlorotic glare." I saw this, and I saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisomely on a flute. And as the thing piped, I thought I heard noxious, muffled flutterings in the fetid darkness where I could not see. But what frightened me most was that flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as healthy flames should, and coating the nitrous stone with a nasty, venomous vertigree. For in all that seething combustion, no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The man who had brought me now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame, and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At certain stages of the ritual, they did groveling obeisance, especially when he held above his head that abhorrent Necronomicon he had taken with him. And I shared all the obeisances because I had been summoned to this festival by the writings of my forefathers. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute player in the darkness, which player thereupon changed its feeble drone to a scarce louder drone in another key, precipitating as it did so a horror unthinkable and unexpected. At this horror I sank nearly to the likened earth, transfixed with the dread, not of this or any world, but only of the mad spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness, beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected, there flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid-winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot and must not recall. They flopped limply along, half- with their webbed feet in half with their membranous wings, and as they reached the throng of celebrants, the cowled figures seized and mounted them, and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river, into pits and galleries of panic, where poisoned springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman had gone with the throng, and the old man remained only because I had refused when he motioned me to seize an animal and ride like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the amorphous flute player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently standing by. As I hung back, the old man produced his stylus and tablet and wrote that he was the true deputy of my father's who had founded the Yule worship in this ancient place, that it had been decreed I should come back, and that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed." He wrote this in a very ancient hand, and when I still hesitated, he pulled from his loose robe a seal ring and a watch, both with my family arms, to prove that he was what he said. But it was a hideous proof, because I knew from old papers that that watch had been buried with my great-great-great-great-grandfather in 1698. Presently the old man drew back his hood and pointed to the family resemblance in his face, but I only shuddered, because I was sure that the face was merely a devilish waxen mask. The flopping animals were now scratching restlessly at the lichens, and I saw that the old man was nearly as restless himself. When one of the things began to waddle and edge away, he turned quickly to stop it, so that the suddenness of his motion dislodged the waxen mask from what should have been his head. And then, because that nightmare's position barred me from the stone staircase down which we had come, I flung myself into the oily underground river that bubbled somewhere to the caves of the sea— flung myself into that putrescent juice of Earth's inner horrors before the madness of my screams could bring down upon me all the charnel legions these pest gulfs might conceal. At the hospital they told me I'd been found, half-frozen in Kingsport Harbor at dawn, clinging to the drifting spar that accident sent to save me. They told me I had taken the wrong fork of the hill road the night before and fallen over the cliffs at Orange Point, a thing they deduced from prints found in the snow. There was nothing I could say because everything was wrong. Everything was wrong, with the broad windows showing a sea of roofs in which only about one in five was ancient, and the sound of trolleys and motors in the street below. They insisted that this was Kingsport, and I could not deny it. When I went delirious at hearing that the hospital stood near the old churchyard on Central Hill, they sent me to St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham, where I could have better care. I liked it there, for the doctors were broad-minded and even lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Alhazred's Objectionable Necronomicon from the Library of Miskatonic University. They said something about a psychosis and agreed I had better get any harassing obsessions off my mind. So I read that hideous chapter and shuddered doubly because it was indeed not new to me. I had seen it before. Let footprints tell what they might. And where it was I had seen it was best forgotten. There was no one in waking hours who could remind me of it. But my dreams are filled with terror because of phrases I dare not quote. I dare quote only one paragraph, put into English as I can make from the awkward low Latin. The nethermost caverns, wrote the mad Arab, are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Cursed the ground where dead thoughts live, new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumor that the soul of the devil-bought hastes not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly are digged where Earth's pores ought to suffice, and things have learnt to walk that ought to crawl. Darkness by Lord Byron I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander, darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth, swung blind and blackening in the moonless air, morn came and went, and came and brought no day. And men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. And they did live by watchfires, and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings. The huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed, and men were gathered around their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour, They fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. The brows of men by the despairing light wore an unearthly aspect, as by fits the flashes fell upon them. Some lay down and hid their eyes and wept, and some did rest their chins upon their clenched hands and smiled, and others hurried to and fro and fed their funeral piles with fuel And looked up with mad disquietude on the dull sky, the pall of a past world, and then again with curses cast them down upon the dust, and gnashed their teeth and howled. The wild birds shrieked, and terrified did flutter on the ground, and flap their useless wings. The wildest brutes came, tame and tremulous, and vipers crawled, and twined themselves among the multitude, hissing but stingless. They were slain for food, and war, which for a moment was no more, did glut himself again. A meal was bought with blood, and each sate sullenly apart, gorging himself in gloom. No love was left. All earth was but one thought, and that was death, immediate and inglorious, and the pang of famine fed upon all entrails. Men died, and their bones were tombless as their flesh. The meager by the meager were devoured, even dogs assailed their masters, all save one. And he was faithful to a corpse, and kept the birds and beasts and famished men at bay, till hunger clung them, or the dropping dead lured their lank jaws himself sought out no food, but with a piteous and perpetual moan and a quick desolate cry, licking the hand which answered not with a caress, he died. The crowd was famished by degrees, but two of an enormous city did survive, and they were enemies. They met beside the dying embers of an altar-place, where had been heaped a mass of holy things, for an unholy usage." They raked up, and shivering, scraped with their cold skeleton hands the feeble ashes, and their feeble breath blew for a little life, and made a flame, which was a mockery. Then they lifted up their eyes as it grew lighter, and beheld each other's aspects, saw, and shrieked, and died. Even of their mutual hideousness they died, unknowing who he was upon whose brow famine had written, Fiend." The world was void, the populist and the powerful was a lump, seasonless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless, a lump of death, a chaos of hard clay. The rivers, lakes, and ocean all stood still, and nothing stirred within their silent depths. Ships, sailorless, lay rotting on the sea, and their masts fell down piecemeal. As they dropped, they slept on the abyss without a surge." The waves were dead. The tides were in their grave. The moon their mistress had expired before. The winds were withered in the stagnant air, and the clouds perished. Darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast in any way you can social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also, consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher, and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to Patreon.com slash ProfCJ. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode... I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter, and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past, so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.